was kind of like being inside of a whale with with a flashlight, you know, or something like that, where I'm just kind of pointing it around randomly and saying to my scientists, okay, what's over here? What is it what does that feel like? What happens if you touch it? What what's over here? What if I went over there? What if I crawled over there? What would I see? And it was just me inch by inch almost trying to figure out what was in there, what was possible, what was impossible. And then slowly in a kind of collaboration between me and the, the scientists, figuring out what were all the things that the diver who's been swallowed could possibly do to try to help the situation. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a thrilling and pulse-pounding episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. We love when a book grabs our attention on the first page that doesn't let you go until the very end. Our guest today has written a book both terrifyingly realistic, but also deeply moving. It's a triumph for sure, and we can't wait to dive in and talk with Daniel Krauss about Whalefall, which is an indie next and a library reads pick for August, and it's received starred reviews from Library Journal and Booklist, who wrote, It's a moving character study disguised as a riveting cinematic survival thriller. The pacing is relentless, the awe astounding, and the tension palpably constricting, even as Krauss takes time to provide necessary details, both scientific and visceral. I am Ron Block. And I'm Meg Walker. Daniel Krauss is the New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen novels and graphic novels. He co-authored The Living Dead with legendary filmmaker George A. Romero. With Guillermo del Toro, he co-authored The Shape of Water, based on the same idea the two created for the Oscar-winning film. Also with Del Toro, Krauss co-authored Troll Hunters, which was adapted into the Emmy-winning Netflix series. He has won two Odyssey Awards for Rodders and Scowler, and The Death and Life of Zebulon Finch was named one of Entertainment Weekly's Top 10 Books of the Year. His books have been Library Guild selections, Yalsa Best Fiction for Young Adult Picks, Bram Stoker finalists, and more. His work has been translated into more than 20 languages. Daniel lives with his wife in Chicago. Daniel, welcome to the podcast, and congratulations on all the amazing pre-pub attention that Whalefall is getting. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. And I'm happy to talk about this book. As I told you before we went on, I think I lost a lot of sleep on this. I couldn't I couldn't <laughs> put it down. It was just um, ugh, it one of riveting. those books. Yes. So... Um, Again, it's a stunning achievement, and it's got two of my very favorite elements encompassing fear and heart. In fact, Gillian Flynn raved about it, saying, It's astoundingly great. Whalefall is, quite simply, a beautiful novel, a must-read story of the sea, the nature of awe, and the briny relationships between fathers and sons. And I could not have said that better. That's exactly what the book was for me. Can you tell us where the original idea for the book first emerged? Yeah, I can. And that's unusual that I can pin it down with such specificity, but I, I, I know the exact day. 
um, mm. which is in the author's note of the book. I can't spit it out at the exact second here, but I was hanging out with some friends in December 2020, and they had both seen a viral video. Um, and it seems like every few years we get one of these where a, a person is ends up in the mouth of a whale. Like there's there's a there's a few of these out there. So the headlines tend to say they've been swallowed, but that's inaccurate because whale throats are generally very small, about size of a Coke can or something. But they, my friends that night were talking about a viral video of two kayakers that had ended up in a whale's mouth for uh, you know a second or two. And I think because I hadn't seen it, uh, and it is, you know, it is a great shocking video, but because I hadn't seen it, it it was even more horrifying to me. And it got me thinking, uh, right that second, um, I wonder if anyone has ever written a book about being swallowed that takes it seriously. There's been plenty of art, I mean, plenty, millennia worth of, of art that has dealt with the metaphorical idea of being swallowed by something, um, whether that's old, like pre-biblical myths or the Bible or Disney films or whatever. Uh, but I don't, I couldn't believe that no one had ever tried to take it seriously. And so the next morning, my brain's still on fire with this idea. I uh, looked into it. I couldn't find anyone who'd ever done such a thing to my shock. Um, so then I you know, there's a long version of this we can go into if you want, but the short version is I began contacting whale scientists to find mm. out A, was it possible? And then B, through infinity, what what exactly would that be like? What, what are the innards of a whale like? I mean, I, I knew absolutely nothing about diving, nothing about whales. This is the absolute 180% opposite of write what you know. I, I, know, I knew nothing. Uh, so it was a long process then of beginning to understand everything. That's great. And yeah, the author's note tells tells that story too. And it's if anybody's interested, when you get the book, make sure you read the author's note. Definitely. So we, we love to ask our guests also beyond what the book is about, which is a lot and it's a great story. But um, the book is about so much more. So what do you feel like the book is really about? Well, you know, it's interesting hearing you speak aloud that Gillian Flynn quote. I don't think I'd realize how perfect it really is. It, it really gets to it. it. It is. It is kind of, first and foremost, a, a real-time thriller. Uh, but it, it is also about two other things. And one, it's a it's kind of about parental-child relationship, a, a very, diff- very difficult one. And, it's, yeah. and then thirdly, I guess, it is sort of about the nature of awe and in how the book handles it and how I think about it. It's sort of about non-religious spirituality um, and religion for the not for the unreligious. Uh, you know, like there's one of the major characters in the book is, is pretty aggressively non-religious and, you know, has nothing nice to say about the church, but in his own ways is intensely spiritual Mm-hmm. Uh, and understands that we sort of all are, whether we, we really realize it or not, there are things out there that make us feel small. And I think feeling small is the key to understanding that there is something that's big. You know, you have mm-hmm. to feel, feel small first. And that for this character and from the book is 
the idea of the whale or, or even more so the idea of the ocean. Uh, because what we think of, of earth often is dry land, but that's like a teeny tiny part of earth. Earth is that poorly named earth is the ocean. Yes. And then there's a little crust of dry land where we live. That's true. And, and right? there's just, it's so full of metaphorical scenes. It's just like, Oh, absolutely. Um, so you, you touched on this a little bit in the beginning about taking this topic seriously. And um, I, I mean, you, you are fully able to get the reader to buy the premise of, of being mouthed by, by a whale. Um, so were you ever nervous that, uh, about pulling that off? Well, it's, it's a big literary feat, I think, what you've pulled off here. Yes. And, um, so talk to us about how you worked through that in your writing and your research. Yeah, I was nervous, and and to you know to be clear, uh, most reports of whale quote unquote swallowing are are mouthing, but in this story, it is a swallowing. You know, one of the first things I I found out from my scientists that it was possible if you had a sperm whale. Sperm whale has a, a quite large throat, as opposed to most all other kind of whales. So a, a big enough sperm whale could swallow a person. So yeah, I mean, there's different kinds of nervousness when starting a, a project, um, and that's good. Whenever, if I ever start a project and I don't have any kind of nervousness, I know that I've done something wrong or I'm, I'm being lazy. I, I say this in every interview, but my career, particularly the latter half of it, has really just been me intentionally causing problems for myself. <laughs> uh, because that, that's it's a great I, way to put it. Yeah, because that's, that's when I write the best. Um, if I that's awesome. I want to always kind of feel like I'm writing the first book again, and so I do that by choosing genres I'm unfamiliar with, choosing topics, research, uh, prose formats, weird ways to use language, anything I can do that, or, or collaborations, anything that pushes me into a zone that I'm not comfortable in. Is that's what I'm looking for. So this nervousness was kind of more like that of, you know, signing up for an advanced class because essentially that's what it was. Like, you know, usually I'm researching by reading books and stuff. This time, although I did that, the research was primarily talking one-on-one -on -one with scientists, and so it was kind of like I signed up for an advanced whale biology class. And so the, wow. the nervousness was really the same as you would feel like you know, the first day in a difficult college class. Uh, like I knew I didn't know anything about it. There was going to be a lot to learn, but I had good teachers and hopefully I'd build up, you know, hang in there. Um, but it was, you know, it was hard. And so I wouldn't, and I'm, you know, I'm a good student. So it's like, I wasn't super nervous about it. I just knew nothing. And it was really, I, the process of figuring out, what was going to happen in the book was kind of like being inside of a whale uh -huh. with, with a flashlight, you know, or something like that, where uh -huh. I'm just kind of pointing it around randomly and saying to my scientists, okay, what's over here? What is it? What does that feel like? What happens if you touch it? Uh, what, what's over here? What if I went over there? What if I crawled over there? What would I see? And it was just me inch by inch, almost trying to figure out what was in there, what was possible, what was impossible. And then, slowly in a kind of collaboration between me and the, the scientists figuring out what were all the things that the diver who's been swallowed could possibly do 
to try to help the situation. And so because it's a real-time thriller, I had to figure all that out before I wrote any of the book, really. Wow. I can't even like some of the things that um, were were found in the stomach of the whale. I was like, how did that get there? But you, <laughs> that's probably I, but I, that's one of the things I actually loved about it is that I felt like I was learning too. So it's like you were learning from being a student of it and then sharing the knowledge with us. Um, the researchers, I mean, it had to be kind of intense, but it made the book very scientifically accurate and plausible. So how did you, you wrote in the author's note about uh, including specific scientific terminology and the format that you used. Can you talk about that and why you did? Because I got to tell you too, I, I never knew I wanted to know all this, but boy, I did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, once you got into it, or once I got into it um, anyway, it was, it never, I never got bored. In, in that sense, it, was, mm -hmm. it wasn't like a college class in that sense. Uh, there were points of difficulty where, you know, there was a there was a certain organ in, in the whale's body that the uh, character interacts with that I just could not figure out. And I spent hours on Zooms trying to figure out this one organ, what it would feel like, how one would manipulate it. Uh, it was it was just very very difficult in specific points that I just had trouble wrapping my head around. Uh, what you're referring to in the office now, which is something I kind of forgot until you mentioned it, was yeah, I decided to not italicize scientific terms. That's kind of what you're speaking of. Uh, so generally, you know, a lot of biologic terms through via proper copy editing would be italicized. And I found um, that uh, distracting in a way, like there was, hmm. there was too many italics in the book. And I also, it felt to me, you know, you know, you know, so a lot of times authors today, there's a movement kind of going on where authors no longer are italicizing language changes. So if someone is speaking in Spanish, uh, they're not italicizing right. the Spanish. And the, the, the idea there is, is trying to, to not make it so feel so precious and feel like you're supposed to announce it with a certain emphasis. It just, it feels weird. It looks well, weird. Takes you out of the story a little bit, right? Like, yeah. Takes the immediacy away. Yeah, yeah, and it, may, and it just makes it look like every time you're speaking Spanish, for example, you're speaking it with a weird emphasis. Uh, so I wanted to sort of convey that kind of respect, so to speak, with the scientific language and treat it sort of as a language. Um, so it, it was part part philosophical and part just practical. Like I didn't I didn't like how the italics were competing with with the other pros for attention. It just, it just felt, it felt right in every way to not italicize them. But I made a point of it because otherwise everyone was going to say, why didn't you italicize this? <laughs> well, and, and also just to add to that a little bit, like uh, oftentimes I'll read a book and if there's terms I'm not familiar with, I do go look them up and things in that. And that might be because they're italicized, right. but in this, I knew what you meant. I really didn't have to look things up. I knew exactly what you meant with the terms. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the father-son story, which is a huge part of this book. So in alternating chapters, um, the book's also about this troubled relationship between Jay and his dad. And your story matches the increasing terror of Jay being swallowed with his looking in the rearview mirror, trying to make sense of what brought him to where he is. So, I mean, to me, those were some of the most poignant and relatable scenes in the book. So can you talk yeah. about combining the two storylines and 
what did you draw from to make the relationship scenes so realistic? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways, the the plot drove the characters in, in a lot of ways. Like generally, or at least a lot of times, you know, the characters and the plot, they're, they're sort of separate and I kind of, I kind of mashed them together in a way. But because I had to start with the plot so in such a painstaking way in this book, it began to, or really uh, cre- told me what kind of characters and relationships I needed for the book. Uh, because I wanted to, for example, all the chapters to have these sort of PSI statements at the beginning that told you how much air was left in the diver's tank. And so that meant I wanted short chapters, and that meant uh, that I wanted that that led me to be able to intercut very quickly between the chapters to emphasize the air going out. And that al- allowed a certain kind of freedom and comp- complication too, about jumping back and forth be time, through time. And also physical factors of the whale, like what kind of person could be swallowed, particularly if they were wearing an air tank on their back, uh, meant they had to be sort of small. So the the book was telling me I need a sort of young, slender diver. So I thought, okay, that's someone who's who's going to be maybe a teenager. Uh, And why are they in such waters anyway? Well, they must be searching for something. Uh, What could they be searching for? And I thought, well, they could be searching for... uh, someone's remains or whose remains and why. And so the, the, the practicalities of the story started telling me what kind of character relationships I needed. And, and, you know, I could really send any kind of diver in the world there, but I, there was something so simple and primal about the concept of the book that I thought was so intrinsically powerful and tripped some sort of trigger in our heads about, you know, making us feel, making us remember when we were earlier forms of bipedal human beings and had to fear being swallowed, uh, that I wanted to match it with a character story that was equally as simple and powerful. Uh, so I just went to the the first relationship we have in life, which is with a, a parental figure. Um, and it felt to me just like, it felt in its own way kind of primordial. Uh, and I just wanted it to be simple, powerful, um, and something everyone could understand because there's a lot in this book that's as far as the geography of the whale, which is so foreign, uh, that there was a clarity to a, a troubled father son relationship that I thought would sort of help in that, that journey. That's awesome. I mean, you did an amazing job. I think, you know, just like you said, it, it, the relationship is so simple and powerful, but it, it, it really humanized, you know, it could, this could stand alone as, as a thriller kind of without all that, but it just, it created just like Jillian Flynn said in her, mm-hmm. her blurb, like it, it really adds a whole other layer to this where you deeply care about um, the people. Um, and so kudos. Yeah. Yep. No question about that. <laughs> just, and I, that's what I'll speak to the relatable part a little bit. I think we'll all see ourselves in some of these characters. I know for me, yeah. it, when I was a child, I was one of five and my father used to come down the hallway and smack the walls going, all rise. Oh, wow. So as soon as I said wow. that, I almost, I almost put the book aside. <laughs> I thought, wow. oh no, we're not going back there. But <laughs> it was like, so I, I think it's really highly relatable. And I love the structure and the even the, um, just to emphasize what you've already said, the shortest of the chapters told so much. 
like in mm-hmm. those very few words. It just really it's it's what's that's what makes it such a triumph, I think. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's I don't generally I tend towards the other way when I'm writing. I my experience has mostly been writing kind of longer, denser chapters than most authors. So this was a you know, again, it was the idea of being able to snatch quick breaths uh, that mm-hmm. that mm. made the flashback system appealing for me. Mm. Um, I, but I've never written a book where I had chapters that are one or two or at most three pages long. That was a whole new experience, and it doesn't make it certainly doesn't make things easier. It has its own. It has all sorts of challenges and problems of its own when you do that. But it was. Yeah, it was on you know, some of those chapters that are just a, a couple sentences long. It is an interesting opportunity to say something powerful that just by dint of like the emptiness around the words on the physical page mm-hmm. almost lends it a sort of power. Absolutely. Absolutely. You got uh, it. And the, 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 the PSI chapter titles added to the terror, the building terror for me too. Cause I was like, Oh my God, where are they now? And it kept bringing you back into the story. And yes, it gave um, you the like ticking time bomb feeling. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about your writing style because I, it's interesting to me that you say that you normally write the opposite way. It felt like so spare. It was almost like Hemingway esque. And I, I wondered mm-hmm. if, you know, that sort of writing style packs a punch with its clarity and, and its directness. Um, so, that was a deliberate, you're saying that was a deliberate thing on your part? Yeah. I mean, it's something that just sort of hit me as I started, you know, it's like, if I, if I'm going to commit to this sort of format of writing these very spare chapters, it, it just calls out for a different kind of writing and you find yourself uh, adjusting the way you write in a very, very basic fundamental way. Um, you start almost writing toward, and again, it's weird to think of a page as like a physical object, like a painting you would look at, but Hmm. I would start looking graphically at a page and just wanting it, a sentence to be like physically shorter or smaller or a paragraph to look different. Um, generally in sort of long run on chapters, it, there's, even with those, I can open a book and look at it and understand something about the writer without reading a single sentence, just by looking at how a page spread looks. You kind of get a sense right away what kind of words they're using, what kind of how how adept they are a language. If you see a bunch of words that and they're all the same size of words, it's different when you see a, a spread and you can tell there's long words and short words and. Uh, there's a lot you can tell just graphically, like almost as if huh. the page is a poster. So I was kind of working in that, in that a little bit, and tr- trying to make the, especially the short chapters, look correct in a weird kind of way. And yeah. I, sometimes working on shortening sentences or combining two paragraphs into one, just to have it look kind of like a like a punch in a way, instead of like something looser that's yep. great oh my god that makes so much sense now that you say all that i know i love it um so uh, you know it, it fascinated me in the beginning of the book i guess it's sort of like your your dedication page where you say uh 
I've never seen a writer do this before, but to 10 writers who changed how I write and you list them off. And um, mm-hmm. I wondered how so, and, and did any of these names here impact this decision to write in this specific writing style? Like I'm looking at, there's some yeah. big names here, Megan Abbott, Ralph Ellison, you know, we've had Megan Abbott on this podcast, by the way. Um, but yeah, t- talk to us about that a little bit. And that, that's a cool choice to put in the front of the book like that. I like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the one hand, this, I think, is my 21st book. So after a while, you, you run out of people to dedicate books to. <laughs> uh, so you have to start kind of thinking creatively about how to do dedications if you want to do them at all. So this time, yeah, I chose, and the wording is very particular here, uh, 10 writers who changed how I write. So some of these people are my favorite writers, but not all of them necessarily. These are very specifically, um, some of my favorite writers in the world didn't really change how I approach writing. Um, but these tended all in a very, very disparate ways. Like mm. there's not really, I, you, we could go out on the list and we could talk about each one of them and what, what they contributed, you know, to my, um, to my writing. Like, I'm just trying to give, look, look at them to give an example here. Like maybe one of the lesser known names on the list is Carol J. Clover, um, who is best known. She's kind of a, film critic in a way Hmm. uh she wrote a book in the 80s called men women and chainsaws uh that is sort of a a foundational text for academic studies of horror films and i stumbled upon that book um when i was a freshman in college and and i had you know i had been watching horror films my whole life and reading horror novels and reading that book even though i couldn't even intellectually keep pace with it all the time uh it the, the 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 fact that she took the genre so seriously was really inspiring and it made me feel like i wasn't wasting my time or you know now that i'm suddenly among the the college literati of the university of iowa uh who would probably shun the horror genre this book was telling me no you you don't have to you haven't wasted your time this is there's important stuff here. So it was like, it was kind of like someone telling me that what I was interested in was worthwhile. So, but yeah, there's some people, there's people on this list who are, are much more nuts and bolts in, in, of an influence on me, but that's just one kind of random example. Love that. That's a good one too. She yeah. seemed ahead of her time. Um, so there's two things about the book that I wanted to ask about. One is that, uh, Whalefall really deals with memory, both the tricks it can play, but also the benefits. What are your thoughts on the power of memory and trauma in storytelling? Hmm. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> it, it is, you know, obviously in a book that's half flashbacks, uh, memory mm-hmm. is, a, is a huge, um, a huge part of it. And because the, the, you know, the diver's father's dead at the beginning of the book. Um, he's searching for his remains. It's everything about him is sort of memory. And he has, because he's was estranged from his father, he has sort of tried to forget him in a lot of ways, you know, mm-hmm. like even when his dad was dying and he re- refused to come see him, he was essentially erasing his database of his father. Um, and now that he's in the whale and in this life or death situation, it is only by remembering Mm. what his dad used to say about sea life in the ocean and diving that he has any chance of survival. 
so he is now has a reason to have to remember things and he's turning up memories that he is, you know, some of them are big traumatic memories. You can't forget, but he's also turning up these little memories. Yeah. Some of them bad, some of them good. Um, and it's, it's the, it's the good ones. That I think that that kind of come later, uh, that you can see how he's, those are the powerful ones to me because you can see how he has intentionally buried the good memories, um, sort of understandably because of how traumatized he is from his relationship with his dad. Um, but the fact is the good memories are there. Good things did happen. His dad wasn't evil. His dad did some bad things for sure. Um, but so did he, you know, so did Jay. Mm -hmm. Not, I don't think they're equal. I think the dad was worse to Jay than Jay was to the dad. But, you know, he has his own regrets for not, for not visiting his dad, um, for not giving them the chance while they were alive to make amends. And yeah, that stuff, that stuff feels powerful to me. You know, there's a reason the yeah, book is, the, the book is carved into two sections, one called truth and one's called mercy. And, you know, we were talking about what the book is sort of about um, on a larger scale. And that's one thing that, Jillian's quote maybe doesn't touch on is that big principle is right. there are facts. There are memories of facts um, of what someone did to you, what you did to them. But then there's something, and this kind of comes from the book of Jonah, um, which was, a, again, was sort of an oddly efficient guiding light for this book. Um, can mercy be more powerful than facts? Uh, and that's sort of what the book wrestles with and what I think everyone reading it hopefully will, will think about. And I don't have a good answer to it. I I'm wrestling with it myself, but can, can you, can you look at the facts and still have mercy for the person who, who did something to you? But that's some of the best writing is that it gets the reader to explore that for themselves. So it, it, it's a great setup for that, for the reader Definitely. to go there. Um, I do want to ask also about one of the beautiful things about this book and the writing and the story is kind of, not not to coin a phrase, but uh, the circle of life and, and about how the, the, the things uh, remain and how they help further generations and things. Can you talk about, did you mean that to be there through the book or did it kind of emerge as you wrote? No, it did. You know, this is just one of those books that come around almost never in a career where everything fits together, right? Mm -hmm. Everything fits together correctly. And you, you find everything, every fact you stumble upon about whales or the ocean or diving seems to feed directly into the themes and characters you're writing about. And, you know, there's a concept of something called a whale fall, you know, which is a, when a whale dies it sinks to the bottom of the ocean and its body uh, is fed upon by creatures and it rots and decomposes and it creates like, a, like centuries worth, worth of life. Uh, so yeah. the death becomes the life. And so it, it, it's not that much of an intellectual jump to, for Jay to think of his father, his father's death creating a new kind of life for him if he can get out of this and, and even if he can't get out of it, like their reconciliation in the belly of the whale is, is still something, even if he's going to die inside this whale, mm. uh, it's, it's some sort of victory and 
panacea or balm. Uh, and so the, there is this sort of, especially when you're dealing with the ocean, there is this kind of like epic saga of life and death and whales are such an integral part of it. Like it's, I mean, I won't go into the biology too much here, but you know, if whales were to disappear, we would suddenly be screwed. Like there's, there's no, uh, they as much as, and other creatures too. Um, but really whales are creating and sustaining life in the ocean, partially through their deaths. And there's the kind of this sense of, uh, it has Jay, you know, it is Jay looking for his father's remains or is Jay his father's remains? Hmm. Um, yes. And that's, that's a real powerful. And even saying that I get kind of chills and I, yeah. and I just I, got him again too. Yeah. And I don't yeah. even know, you know, fully what I feel about that, but th th there's no way around it really. Like you are the remains of the people who affected you. Um, and you don't necessarily have to go looking for them because you are them. Right. That's a tough lesson to learn in life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, Daniel, a lot of our author guests talk about through lines or common themes that show up in their work. And, and you've written and co-written so many amazing books, so many different kinds of books and projects. Um, so talk to us about that. Do you think there are themes that recur for you project to project? Um, yeah, you know, I've had, I've had some brought to my attention recently that I wasn't even aware of, you know, <laughs> it takes, like I takes other people to tell you these are your yeah, lines. <laughs> yeah, oh. Like some of them I'm sort of aware of, like, I know that I've written a lot about monstrosity, um, mm -hmm. and redefining it sort of, you know, mm -hmm. and this is one of the things that really brought Guillermo del Toro and I together was we were both individually interested in in redefining what a monster is and our, our natural sympathies tend toward the monster, um, whether it's creature from black lagoon or whatever, we, we sort of, we sort of identify with the, the, the isolated, um, disliked alienated monsters. Um, so I know I've written about that a lot. And even in this book, you know, like you could look at the book and, and think to yourself, Oh, this is going to be like, this is going to be like jaws. This is going to be, yeah man versus monstrous beast uh, but it was really important to me that the whale is not the monster at all the whale has no interest in hurting jay jay got it accidentally swallowed and you know the biology of the whale is what it is you know there's certain you know digestive processes happening yeah. there uh but the whales whales are not our enemies they are if anything they really are our, our friends um mm. you know they're sort of humans and simians and whales i mean that's sort of the triad of the the intellectuals of the earth so i sort of wanted to unmonstro i don't even know the word monstratize the the, the idea <laughs> monster of eyes the beast uh, yes. in this case as well um so that's what I know is my through line. I've had other people tell me recently that they see a lot of found family stuff in my book, uh, uh. That, that it's, it's sort of about that. My career has been largely about writing stories of non-traditional families. Um, 
which I'm, I'm still kind of processing that. I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah, there's an element of that in this, though, for sure. Yeah, like he's choosing, you know, the diver leaves his family and spends his last couple of years in high school with friends. Yeah, right. Um, and that's, um, yeah, I don't know how, how I feel about that analysis, but um, yeah, there's something to think about, though. Yeah. So we've talked about how realistic and cinematic the book feels, and we know that you're no stranger to the movie world yourself, obviously. So tell us, has there been any interest in Whale Fall from Hollywood? Yes. Um, yes. The book has been optioned by Imagine Entertainment, um, which Whoa. was the... Yes. So that's that's Ron Howard and um, the sort of Howard Grazer company. They've made, you know, gigantic, important pieces of film. Yes, um, indeed. That's Congratulations. Congrats. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird year in film with the writer's strike and the yeah. actor's strike. And so... Um, you know, it's hard to know at what pace any project is going to. Yeah. Right now, everything, everything's kind of at a standstill right now for good reason. Uh, yeah, but that has happened. It, it, it is interesting, you know, particularly this project to envision it as a film. Obviously there's all sorts of challenges because you're dealing with um, half of it's, you know, flashback, depending on how it's adapted. Of course, a lot of it's flashback and that kind of makes sense. Um, the part that's all inside the whale, that's an interesting challenge. Awesome. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of stories that take place in limited locations, but usually those limited, <laughs> this is one. Usually yeah. those limited locations are like a room. You know? right. uh, there's a movie called Buried from several years ago that takes place all in a, in a coffin. Uh, but this is even tighter. <laughs> this is, you know, a whale stomach is like being inside an elastic sleeping bag, essentially. So Oof. you can sort of stretch it out with your arms and legs, but you're, you're, I mean, it's, it is the, the literal smallest location you can put a person in. Uh, so that's an interesting visual challenge for sure. Wow. Yeah. I'll say. Well, I'm ready. Oh yeah, exactly. Go, let's exactly. Go. Let's get so, the strike wrapped up. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. God, <laughs> I we're moving forward. So we're so excited to have whale fall get into readers hands. And like us, we'll all be dying to know what you might have coming next. Any hints? Yeah, I've got a number of, I mean, I've always got a lot of stuff going on I at could, once. I figured. Um, I recently finished writing a uh, my first real sci-fi book. Um, I've dabbled in kind of, you know, I have, I have one book called Bent Heavens that sort of dabbles in kind of alien conspiracy. But this is a sci-fi book, to, you know, like spaceships and planets and alien races, like, you know, a true outer space sci-fi book. Uh, and again, as we were talking about earlier, I... I do that to keep myself on my toes, um, to wake myself up every day and to create something that I have no idea how to do. Uh, so that was really, really fun to work on. I loved it so much. I, I During it, I thought to myself, maybe I should have been writing sci-fi all this time because I just enjoyed it so much. <laughs> I'm working on a nonfiction project right now. Oh, wow. Um, that I, uh, way too early to talk about, but I'm about halfway through that. Um, I've got a uh, unannounced graphic novel that Ooh. is my part is finished, but it's being illustrated right now. Or, or, um, but yeah, I can't talk about that yet. Um, yeah. There's like, and there's a couple others that are projects that are just waiting to be announced. Very cool, yeah. awesome. That uh, sounds like you're quite the slacker. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding. These are yeah, all great. You know, it's <laughs> like I know I'm, I know I'm a prolific writer, but like. 
yesterday for various reasons, I had to look up sort of, sort of stat about myself. And I realized that since 2020, including 2020, I've written 13 books in three years. Wow. Or I've published that many. It's just, I don't even, I can't even comprehend how that, how that happened. So 21, so 2020 through 2023. So I guess that's four years, right? 2020, 21, so four years. 13 books in four years, which is it's incredible. So you're one of those madness. annoying people who use the pandemic to become more productive. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, I pretty much was just doing my normal. Uh, I use the pandemic to just maintain my pace, nice. uh, which was already a little over the top. Wow. Well, good for you. Good for all of us, actually. <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. Yeah. Good for us. Um, well, Daniel, congratulations on this stunning book. We think Whalefall is, is going to be a huge hit with readers. We know it is. Yeah. Um, can you tell our listeners where they can connect with you online and in person? Um, yeah. Uh, so online, uh, danielkraus.com will have the major links. While I'm on tour, I will um, be posting on Twitter and, and Blue Sky. And I'm on tour. So from August 7th, through whatever two weeks from August 7th is, is uh, the main, the main uh, tour tour, but then I'll be making other appearances throughout the rest of the year. Um, again, I would just go to danielkraus.com slash appearances um, or just go to the whale fall page and there's a link and then I'll tell you where you can find me on tour. I've got a lot of really great and unexpected guests um, at these events and I'll be yes. doing a really cool pre- presentation of uh, sort of the history of whale swallowing lore and myth and the science behind the book and all that. So it should be pretty cool. Yeah, Very I cool. can't wait. One of the stops is here in Cleveland with me uh, and Dan. Hooray. So I cannot wait on Pub Day. So we're really looking yes. forward to and that. Pub Day is August 8th, everybody. So mark that down or pre-order the book right away because it's coming real soon. Well, you know, thank you so much, Daniel, and, and kudos on all the attention the book is getting. Um, I can't wait for it to be out in the world and for everybody to be able to to read it and uh, devour it, actually, because it's <laughs> yes. impossible to not devour. Put a night aside. <laughs> yes, really. Thank you so much. It, this has been fun. It's been great. Great. And thank you to our listeners. We're so grateful you've chosen to join us on this episode. If you are like us, you'll want to run and get your hands on a copy of Whalefall. One way to do that is to visit our friendsinfictionbookshop.org page. You'll get a discount and you'll be helping support an indie bookstore. Thank you again and hope you'll tune in for our next episode. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.